questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. And tonight we discuss the joys of psychopathocracy, why criminality is essential to effective modern government. This is government. There are many things you can do with government. You can use it to rally people to a cause. You can use it to tell people how much you care about social justice, civil rights, law and order, the environment, world peace, racism, or democracy. There's a thousand uses you can find for government. Yet there is only one function for which it is best suited and for which its designers use it 99% of the time to mask, nurture, cultivate, and actuate criminal conspiracies. In other words, you use it to create the appearance of goodness, when in fact it acts as a cover for the most evil and hideous human activities imaginable. The reason that this is the government's best function is because that is the purpose for which it was created. Any other function is artificial, not in keeping with government's original design or its essential nature. Greetings, I'm your host, Mal Fabregas. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, past, present, and future, subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Tonight's special guest is food technologist, herbalist, author, Greg Caton. In 1995, Greg created Alpha Omega Labs, which became a provider of over 300 alternative health products with 14 distributors around the world before its closure by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in September 2003. It successfully reopened in Ecuador in June 2008. Alpha Omega Labs is best known for Cansema, an effective cure for skin cancer based on suppressed formulary information dating back to the 1850s. Over a 13-year period, Alpha Omega Labs was responsible for curing thousands of cancer cases. Greg was imprisoned for years, released and later extraordinarily renditioned and imprisoned again. He has written a new book titled The Joys of Psychopathocracy, Why Criminality is Essential to Effective Modern Government, which would be the focus of tonight's interview. And to learn more about Great Caton and his work, visit his websites, greatcaton.com and herbhealers.com. And directly from Ecuador, even though he has been with me on Sanitas twice, for the first time on Veritas, I would like to welcome Greg Caton. Hello, Greg, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Thank you for having me, Mel. Always a pleasure. And for those people who may not know who you are, I highly suggest, folks, that you go back to our archive on Sanitas. We did two two incredible interviews there. It shows the exact story. I don't want to be sounding too repetitive tonight because we have so much territory to cover. This is almost like a manifesto. You may call it a swan song. But first of all, let me ask you this. With what you went through, Greg, writing this book, and after I read it, I thought, are you poking the hornet's nest? You know, I think you have to speak your own truth at some point. You know, I, I, I'm i sure that you frequently heard the same by George Orwell, or George Orwell that in times of extraordinary uh, times of universal deceit, speaking the truth becomes a universal act. But but that's yeah. where we're at. I mean, we there there is no chance for us. And in book two of uh, of the joys of psychopathocracy, I talk about I, I talk about an interview that I had. In fact, it was so it got so personal that I actually declined 
as an afterthought. I declined to post it on YouTube, even though that was on my original thought. But basically, it we're in a very precarious times. We are in the middle of the Holocene extinction event, and according to Guy McPherson, prescribes to this idea called near-term human extinction. He says we've got ten years, but doesn't matter. Ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, it doesn't matter. We are, um. We are in the process of signing our own death certificates, and if we're not – if we reached, if we've reached a point where we can't speak to each other truthfully about these things because we may upset somebody in government, then there's no hope for us anyways. There has to be some – I think the most hallowed, hallowed principle among all civil rights is the ability to speak freely. Um, it's been often there's – there's a paraphrase of Volt of the French philosopher Voltaire. This kind of a summation of a lot of the principles that were behind the founding of the U.S. in the first place. And this expression is, I may not believe a word you say, but I'll fight to the death your right to say it. If we've lost that, if that no longer exists, if we have to worry about there being a target on our back because we speak our truth, then there's no hope for us anyways. So, you know, um, I understand that this book is going to upset uh, a certain number of people, particularly those who who have their pig snout deep inside the trough of the um, uh, government's uh, largesse, but I can't worry about that. I have to speak my own truth and let the chips fall where they may. And I, I prescribe to this as an actual philosophy. People should learn to speak their own truth because that's part of what's wrong right now. We've gotten to this this mode of political correctness where people are it, it it deprives people of their own honesty. When people cannot even be honest with themselves because they're afraid of what their peers may think, we we've gone in the wrong direction. We have to speak freely or or there's no hope for us. I like the I like Voltaire, but I also like the one of his best quotes to learn who rules over you simply find out who you're not allowed to criticize and this me the, the mere fact that you and I are talking today the book and what we're going to be discussing today will just tell everybody in case they don't know but you know Greg we once had if we ever did a government off by and for the people the government feared its citizens not the other way around what changed and when did it change well i think it's I don't see it as a linear progression. I see it as something that has kind of gone back and forth throughout the centuries. But my point in doing this book is that – and I'm trying to find a way to express it in the simplest terms – is that we have all of these structures that exist in our life. We have our families. We have our relatives. We have our business associates. We have local government. We have national government. We have global NGOs. We have all that – we're surrounded by all these structures. But they exist within the mind in a very disorganized way because we don't know how to relate to them in a way as to how – what is our true relationship with them. And what I've done, which I think is extremely novel. It's another reason I wrote this book. I think I, – I, if anybody else had ever written a book, anything like this, then I would have just said, go over there and buy that guy's book. It's a great book. Um, what I've done is I've taken a form of of, of structured social analysis – where all of these different entities that exist in our lives get put into this uh, a, a mental structure where you're able to have what I call sectoral distance. You're able to see what is my relationship between these entities and 
um, you're able to realize that, at least in the case of government, that ultimately it is not possible ever in any country, in any language, in any time to have good government. It isn't possible. It isn't structurally possible. And for people who haven't read my book, I know that there's people who are going to say, you know, what are you talking about? That's outrageous. But you have you have to you have to read what I what, what I have created because it's very logical, very structured, and it, it all makes sense. There there is this this idea that we have this very hierarchical social structure with bureaucracies that lord over us. That somehow that you can arrange that into some form, whether the overreigning philosophy is capitalism or socialism or communism or whatever whatever ism that you want to create that somehow you can rearrange the deck chairs and you'll get some better form of it there are some governments which are better than others there is no government which exists in a way that relative to you as the individual is does not exhibit and this is a very important principle exists throughout the entirety of my book Negative reciprocity. I shortened it to to negaprocity. Now, most people, most members of your audience, they know what reciprocity is. They know what it is to have a relationship with someone where I do things for them. They do things for me. I'm happy with them. I like them. They're happy with me. They like me. They understand this basic concept of of reciprocity. And I draw my my work from – um, it's an extension of the work of an American anthropologist by the name of Marshall Solon. What he did is he studied uh, uh, indigenous groups and identified the various types of relationships that people can have. The relationship you have with your mother, your family, your tribe, intertribal relationships, tribes within your, your area, and uh, the various types of reciprocity that exist, you know, uh, unconditional reciprocity, structured reciprocity, uh, you know, the, the various types of w- uh, weak, weak reciprocity. But he never goes outside this outer circle. And this is what caught my attention. He never – because outside that circle, he says, when you step outside this circle, you now have a form – of course, we know we all experience this all the time – a form of human relationship that he called negative reciprocity. I'm dealing with you, Mel, and instead of saying, how can I make Mel happy? How can I work with Mel in a way where I benefit and he benefits and we're both happy? Instead, my thought process is, how can I exploit Mel? How can I have it so that at the end of the transaction, I benefit and I'm the winner and he's the loser? And the point that I try to make is out on the far fringes, and I actually categorize, I categorize all these different forms of negative reciprocity so that the person can actually create a structure. Basically, my book reprograms your brain. That's what it does. It's designed to reprogram you so that you're able to put in perspective the various types of human relationships. And it's, it's a very easy thing to do so that you see, you know, what what the ultimate possibilities are within the nature of that relationship. As it relates to government, government is by its very nature negaprocitous. It's an adjective that I use meaning that it's it lends itself to negative reciprocity. It's exploitative. Government can never give to the people more than it takes from the people. It is by its very nature structured. When when you take my form of social analysis, it is parasitic. It can never be anything other than parasitic. And then I extend that even further saying, what is relationships government to the natural order? 
to Mother Nature, to the earth, to the life systems that ensure that we will exist, our children will exist, and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have a living, breathing world. And the conclusion I came to is that with the progression of government becoming more and more invasive in our lives to the point where the government is more – because of technology, government is more invasive now than, another, than at any other time. The Holocene extinction event, the event we are in now, an event that is more serious than the Permian extinction of 252 million years ago, if you had to point your finger and find fault or find the source of this Holocene extinction event, my point is follow my logic and you will see that you will find that the ultimate culprit is government. And I think that's an important realization, at least if we're going to be go to a point where to follow up on this work of Professor Emeritus of the University of Arizona, Guy McPherson, that we really are in near-term human extinction. I think people have the right to know what is the source of their demise. I think it's an important topic of conversation. Absolutely. And I'm going to find to see if I can conduct an interview with Professor McPherson. He's not too far away from me here in Tucson. Now, Greg, you already oh, experienced... Actually, I, I actually should... Go ahead. Actually, he's currently living in Belize. He lived for Arizona. Oh, for so he's retired? Yeah. He, well, I, I think... Um, <laughs> I don't even know if this is a word. I think in his state of fed-upness, I think he just, you know, relocated, him, relocated to the Cayo district of uh, <laughs> Western Belize and just said, I'm, I, this, I've had enough. I'm out of here. Well. But he's... he's um, I interviewed him for an hour, and I had a host of questions for him. And, you know, people may not agree with him, but, but uh, you know, pe people want to focus on these small issues. They want to focus on how many parts per billion of CO2 are in the air or how much methane or any of the, these other forms of chemical analysis when we can see what's going on before our eyes. What is the number one cause of the extinction of any species? Well, you learn that from any evolutionary biologist. He'll tell you. The cause of the demise of a species is habitat collapse. And what we're seeing right now in, in Africa, in the Middle East, and these expanding dead zones that are caused by Fukushima, slowly but surely we are seeing ha habitat collapse uh, all over the world. And this is how it starts. This is how this, the extinction of a species starts. And when you realize that, when you realize that the extinction of the species is primarily through habitat collapse, then all of this, all of these, all this polemic regarding this particular greenhouse gas or that particular greenhouse gas, it becomes immaterial because the end result, something that's far closer to our being able to measure what's actually going on, is the state of the health. Uh, of the environment and uh, whether or not our, our, the area that humans can live and survive on is growing or shrinking. In our case, it's shrinking. Let me ask you this. It just occurred to me right now. I didn't have this in my notes. But since you mentioned Fukushima, you know, many people blame these massive hurricanes we're seeing lately through global warming. But could it be that what's causing the warming of the oceans is actually something, I mean, some people say is solar maximum times, you know, they, we have El Nino, but could Fukushima have a place to be blamed about this? I, I don't know the degree to which there's a causal connection. I think there's a number of people who make very compelling arguments that this is all because of uh, weather modification, weather engineering. The, 
the, certainly we've got the evidence in the U.S. Patent Office to show that, that this is what uh, has been going on. Uh, I have friends in the California who actually witnessed you know, these fireballs coming down that were precursors to all these fires going on in Northern California. I mean, again, I, I get into this very deeply in the book. When you get to the far ends of negaprosity, what this actually leads to and what it leads to is the gravitation of people with highly um, psychopathological conditions gravitating toward government because like attracts like. And there is a certain personality type. I, I get into this deep in the book. There's a certain personality type that gets a certain psychic joy or psychic thrill out of creating misery for others. Um, misery for others, misery for the environment, disregard for the life and respect of animals and other life forms, and you find the uh, a, a propon you find a, a higher than normal percentage of people in government who have these kinds of psychopathic characteristics, and it manifests in how they think, and it manifests in their behavior, and. Um, Getting back to your original question as, as it relates to what's going on with, with the hurricanes, with the weather modification, I mean, there, there, there's certain people who actually, you know, they, they there's a thrill for them. There's a thrill for them in seeing all these people displaced and all these, uh, you know, the the so many people who died that's still gone unreported and what happened in the Houston area. You know, I got a phone call. <clears throat> I got a phone call uh, about two weeks after the hurricane hit. He said, "You know, do you do you realize?" He says, "I do you realize that there were super super sites, you know, super clean sites that were established by the EPA that are near uh, Houston, and because the, the flooding was so bad, those those chemicals have scattered all over the Houston area. In a matter of speaking, already, even though we may not see it manifest immediately, just like Fukushima happened in March of 2011, but it took two or three pe- years for people to really see." The deep impact of what Fukushima was doing in the same fashion, it's going to take years to see what this hurricane, what, what was it, Harvey? I can't remember now. Uh, Which one? Did, yeah, the one that hit Houston. And Harvey. The Harvey. And my point is that uh, my friend said that he has associates that are very familiar with these super sites. He said, for all intents and purposes, Houston is already uninhabitable. Oh, sure, you're going to have people live there. There's going to be people going to their apartments, trying to get back, trying to live their lives. But it's so toxic now that in terms of living a a, a life as a homo sapien in a reasonably healthy environment, that whole entire area, which just happens to be my wife's birthplace, it's uninhabitable. It'll just take a few years. Because of the chemicals they dropped? Because of the the, – there's just unbelievably nasty, toxic chemicals that leaked out of these super sites that are – that got washed into the into the water and is now basically all, all over Houston. <laughs> so it's going to take time. People are not going to see this right away. It's, it's going to take – but basically this is only one event of many. This contributed to the um, demise of our, um, of our environment. But hold it because in Puerto Rico – they were giving people water because at one point there was no water. They were giving people water from super sites. And then they were saying, well, we, we there's some chemicals, but I think they'll be fine. But about these fires, I have to ask you, I saw this morning from where it was, LA Times. Why is the Army Corps of Engineers going to dismantle foundations of Santa Rosa's homes burned out. And some people, a lot of people have been emailing me because they know that I've interviewed Dr. Judy Wood. 
Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.